Hello, I'm David King, and welcome to the United Methodist Ministry Academy podcast. This is Episode 3, Holy Communion. How do United Methodists understand communion, and how is it practiced in Methodist churches? If you want to learn more than I'm going to tell you, you should check out a book by a Gail Carlton Felton. It's called This Holy Mystery, A United Methodist Understanding of Holy Communion, and it is the authoritative work on the subject. So today, first we're going to talk about the theology of communion, and then we'll talk a little bit about its practice. So we're talking about the sacrament of Holy Communion. In the United Methodist Church, communion is one of two sacraments, the other being baptism. It's usually referred to as communion or Holy Communion. Other traditions use different names for essentially the same thing. For example, Eucharist, which is just the Greek word for Thanksgiving. The Lord's Supper, which recalls that Jesus shared a similar ritual with his disciples shortly before his crucifixion and commanded them to continue the practice. Sometimes it's just called the sacrament, since it's practiced much more frequently than baptism. Catholics, of course, call it the Mass. Orthodox Christians call it the Divine Liturgy. All of these are referring to basically the same practice, although it is sometimes understood differently by different communities. So what is this thing that we call communion? There are Christians gathered together in community. They have some bread, and they have some wine or juice. Someone says a prayer of some kind. Everyone shares in eating and drinking the elements. They say that they are consuming the body and blood of Christ. So how do we understand this theologically? The Roman Catholic understanding is called transubstantiation. When the priest blesses the elements, they stop being bread and wine, and they become the actual body and blood of Jesus. The Lutheran understanding is called consubstantiation. The elements stay bread and wine, but the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus are present in, under, and through the elements. For Baptists and many others, there's no transformation at all, nothing magical or mystical, the Lord's Supper is just a remembrance of Jesus' last supper with his disciples. The Methodist position is that the body and blood of Jesus are really present in the bread and wine, but how they are present is a mystery. And one of the best sources to go to for the Methodist theology of communion is a hymn written by Charles Wesley. It's called, O oh, the Depth of Love Divine number 627 in the hymnal. I have rarely heard it sung in United Methodist churches, but the words are quite beautiful. Oh, the depth of love divine, the unfathomable grace. Who shall say how bread and wine God into us conveys? How the bread his flesh imparts, how the wine transmits his blood, fills his faithful people's hearts with all the life of God. Wesley is saying that we know for certain that the bread and wine transmit the body and blood of Christ, but does anyone really know how to explain it? He goes on, Let the wisest mortals show how we the grace receive, 
feeble elements bestow a power not theirs to give? Who explains the wondrous way how through these the virtue came? These the virtue did convey, yet still remain the same. Here, Wesley still insists that the elements convey the true body and blood of Jesus, but he also says that, mysteriously, they are still just bread and wine. There isn't a transubstantiation where they cease being bread and wine in order to become body and blood. They stay bread and wine, but somehow, mysteriously, they also give to us the true body and blood. I'm going to skip ahead and just share with you my favorite line at the end of verse 3. Ask the Father's wisdom how, Christ who did the means ordain. Angels round our altars bow to search it out in vain. I just love that image. Even the angels don't understand how God does it. In fact, every time we celebrate communion, angels gather around the altar, gather around the table to try and to figure it out. But no matter how hard or how often they look, they can never unravel it. It is a divine mystery. And you'll notice when we get to the communion liturgy, the prayer says, Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ. Make them be for us. It acknowledges the mystery. Yes, we know that it's just bread and juice, and yet we also know that somehow, mysteriously, God makes them to be for us the body and the blood. In addition to offering us the body and blood of Christ, communion does more for us. It makes us the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. It makes us, the church, the body of Christ, and it connects us with everyone else who is in the body of Christ. It connects us with those in our congregation who are sharing together. But it also connects us with other Christians across the world, whether they are Methodist or not. The practice of communion declares that we are all one in Christ. Whether we like it or not, whether we live like it or not, we are all one body, though the body is often broken. It also means that we are one body with all Christians who have come before us. Even more, we are connected with all those who will come after. In the practice of communion, we are mystically connected to the whole church, past, present, and future. Communion is also what John Wesley called a means of grace. It is one of the ways through which we receive God's grace. It is a sign of God's bounty, of God's provision for our lives. It is a sign of God's forgiveness for us and God's desire to continue to be in relationship with us, of gathering us around the table and feeding us with spiritual food. It is one of the many ways that God makes God's grace known to us. And communion is a remembrance. That is to say, we do it in remembrance of Jesus and in remembrance of Jesus' words. But it is also a remembrance. When we celebrate communion, we remember the body of Christ. That is, remember as opposed to dismember. 
We gather up the broken pieces of the body. That is, we gather ourselves in all of our sin and our disharmony and our brokenness. And in the sacrament, we are bound back together as one. We remember the body of Christ. We enact and declare the unity of Christ's church. So that is how we understand communion theologically. In just a moment, we'll talk about how communion is generally practiced in the United Methodist Church. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was a major proponent of frequent communion. He suggested that Methodists take communion as often as possible, even once a day if it was available. You can read more about that in his sermon called The Duty of Constant Communion. However, in the early years of American Methodism, there was a serious shortage of ordained clergy. Most of the local ministry was done by lay leaders and preachers, while ordained pastors tended to be assigned to a circuit of several churches, visiting each one only once in a while. Since only ordained pastors could celebrate communion, many congregations rarely had access to the sacraments, and many Methodists got rather used to that reality. Even after more clergy became available, the practice of infrequent communion had sunk in. Today, the UMC recommends having communion every week, but this is practiced only by a minority of congregations. Most congregations have communion once a month, typically on the first Sunday of the month. The first congregation that I was assigned to was used to having communion only four times a year. The liturgy that is generally used is called the Great Thanksgiving. It has parts for the pastor and also parts for the people to read or sing. There are general versions of the Great Thanksgiving in the front of the hymnal and in the front of Mil Voces para Celebrar. Some versions give you all the words, and some offer space for variation and improvisation. There are also special versions of the Great Thanksgiving for special seasons and occasions in the front of the Book of Worship and in several other supplementary resources. There are musical settings in the front of the hymnal and at number 2257 of The Faith We Sing, and also elsewhere. I generally use the whole Great Thanksgiving. Some pastors use a much more abbreviated version. So long as you tell the story of Jesus instituting the sacrament, and so long as you call on the Holy Spirit to make it communion, you're probably covered. But if you use the whole liturgy, then you're sharing in a common practice that goes back centuries and is practiced by a majority of the world's Christians today. In terms of the actual logistics of having communion, there is a variety of practice. Most often, a whole loaf of bread or several loaves of bread are used. Sometimes you'll see the use of what I call Jesus cubes, you know, that bread that has been pre-cut into about three-quarter inch cubes. Rarely you'll see the use of unleavened communion wafers. 
One constant is that grape juice is always used, never wine. That's for a couple of reasons. For one, Methodists were really into the temperance movement, but uh, also Dr. Thomas Bramwell Welch, the inventor of pasteurized grape juice, was a Methodist. So there's that. Most frequently, the juice is kept in a single common cup, or perhaps a few cups, if there's going to be more than one communion station. Many congregations use small individual cups of juice instead, though there's usually a larger cup that is used symbolically during the communion liturgy. In terms of distribution, the most common method is called intinction. Congregants come forward to a pair of servers. One of the servers has bread and the other has the cup. The first server, who is often the pastor, tears a piece of bread off the loaf, puts it in the hand of the one who is receiving, and then the one receiving dips that piece of bread into the cup that's held by the second server before eating the bread that has been dipped into the juice. Typically, it is done while everyone is standing. No one kneels down. But sometimes, people will receive with intinction, but while kneeling at an altar railing. Sometimes the second server, instead of having a single cup, has a tray with those individual cups, and the bread and the juice are consumed separately from one another. And there are a myriad of other variations that might be practiced at any particular congregation, including multiple stations, a gluten and allergen-free station, serving people who have mobility issues where they're seated, or even passing the elements through the congregation. It is, however, very unusual for Methodists to drink directly from a common cup, as is done in some other traditions. For all practical purposes, the United Methodist Church practices an open table. Anyone can receive communion, regardless of their background or of their status. Wesley believed that communion was a means of grace, and that if non-Christians were to receive it, well, that might be the very thing that turned their heart toward God. It is theoretically possible for a pastor to refuse communion to someone who is a notorious sinner, but in practice, this is rarely, if ever, done. Everyone is invited to the table. But who is allowed to preside at the table? That is a lot more complicated, and there is a deep history behind all of it, only some of which we'll have time to cover. The system was originally developed assuming that only ordained elders could preside. Elders had to be mobile to cover lots of ground. But then the church settled down, and there were enough elders to cover just about everywhere without having to be constantly on the road. Ordained elders have sacramental authority to perform baptisms and to celebrate communion wherever they are. The same with provisional elders. They have that same authority granted through a license from the bishop, even though they are still in a provisional status and have been commissioned but have not yet been ordained. However, elders can be expensive, especially when they have to have a three-year master's degree. Not every church could afford an elder, or even half of an elder, and there wasn't a lot of excitement about returning to a circuit-riding system where one elder would cover a huge territory. So in places where there was no elder available, 
there needed to be a new provision. Licensed local pastors were the solution. They didn't have to be seminary trained, but they did receive some theological education while they were on the job through a program called the Course of Study. Licensed local pastors, often abbreviated as LLPs, are licensed to do pastoral ministry, and they have sacramental authority, but only in the specific place where they are appointed by the bishop. They cannot celebrate communion or perform baptisms outside the context of their charge. That doesn't mean it's just inside the church building, though. For example, an LLP could serve communion to a parishioner at their home or in a nursing home, or they could offer communion at a church retreat that was outside uh, the physical building of the church. So ordained elders are authorized to perform sacraments in any place, and so are provisional elders. Licensed local pastors and associate members also have sacramental authority, but only in the context to which they are appointed, and only while they are appointed there. Ministers of other denominations, sometimes abbreviated MOD, they can have their orders recognized by the clergy session and be appointed to United Methodist Churches, in which case they have sacramental authority, just like an elder. There does not need to be an agreement establishing full communion between their denomination and the United Methodist Church. You can learn more about this category in the Book of Discipline at paragraph 346. Ministers of other denominations, even if they are not appointed to a UM congregation, are generally considered to be able to celebrate communion in a United Methodist congregation if they have been asked to do so by the pastor of that congregation, who ultimately has authority for that congregation. But that's about it. Ordained elders, provisional elders, licensed local pastors, associate members, and ministers of other denominations with permission. Ordained and provisional deacons play an important role in the communion liturgy when they are present, but they do not have sacramental authority on their own. Very rarely, a deacon can be given special dispensation to preside at communion. In such a case, they would essentially be both a deacon and a licensed local pastor at the same time. So what happens in congregations that don't have an elder or a minister of another denomination or a licensed local pastor? What happens in congregations that are led by laypersons? Well, one option is to have someone who is authorized to come in as a guest to preside at communion. But if that is not an option either, then sometimes the table can be extended. It is a long-established practice that lay people can take the elements that were blessed at the communion table and share them with parishioners who are homebound or otherwise unable to come to the regular worship service. They don't have to have sacramental authority themselves, but they can transport the already blessed elements and share them with someone at home or in hospital. The communion table can be extended from the physical church building to these other contexts. The same logic is sometimes applied to congregations that do not have a pastor authorized to celebrate communion. Elements that have been blessed in another context can be brought in to be shared in this second context. 
the table can be extended from one congregation to another. Ideally, the elements used in this second context would have been blessed in the regular worship service of another congregation. However, when this is impractical, elements that have been blessed at an irregular worship service are sometimes used. For example, an elder might gather together for worship with several lay pastors on a Friday afternoon. They could celebrate communion together, and then those lay pastors could take the bread and juice that were blessed at the worship service and share them with the congregation that they serve. When this is done, it needs to be made clear to the congregation what is happening. You don't want to give the mistaken impression that a lay pastor is consecrating the elements without authority. If you are a lay pastor in this situation, it is best practice to tell the congregation where the elements came from. It's also best practice to avoid using any parts of the communion liturgy that might give a mistaken impression. In particular, don't use the bit, which is called the epiclesis, that says, pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and wine and make them be for us the body and blood of Christ. Is this a messy system? Yes, it is. Is it somewhat inconsistent? Yes. Is it the system that someone would have designed if they were making it up from scratch? No, it is not. But it is the system that we have, a system that has formed in response to the missional needs of Christ's church. Imperfect, yes, but aiming to do the right thing. If you have questions, especially questions about who is sharing communion and how they are doing it, check with your district superintendent and make sure that you are both on the same page. Well, that's it for this episode of the United Methodist Ministry Academy podcast. Please let me know how I can make it more relevant for you. You can email me at umministryacademy at gmail.com. There's also a place in the show notes where you can leave a voice message with your feedback or questions. In the next episode, we will talk about baptism, confirmation, and membership. How do Methodists understand these three things, and how are they related to one another? However, I'm going to be away for a couple of weeks, so if you're listening to these episodes as they're coming out, there'll be a little break between this one and the next. Thank you for listening. Thank you for answering God's call on your life. Thank you for coming to the Columbia District, and keep up the good work.